hopefully you guys are open to Mark chapter 3, yes? And you're ready to study the Word, because that's why we came, right? Worship the Lord, study His Word, and be edified, be built up. So let's pray. Lord, as we open Your Word, uh, we just acknowledge afresh in our hearts, I hope we do at least, just take this minute to think about things above, not things of the earth. Lord, it's so easy for us to get our eyes off of You and onto our problems. We even think about... uh, Peter walking on water and and becoming fearful when he took his eyes off of Jesus and and then started to go down and how you lifted him up. And so, Lord, I pray for this group as a church, for our church leadership, for our church family, that we would continually keep our eyes on things above and not on things of the earth. Lord, that we live here, but we're not controlled by things here. That we live here, we have work to do while we're here. Uh, We have a message to spread and a life to live so that we can do that until you call us to be with yourself, be it by death or by rapture, Lord, of your second coming. So teach us, Lord. We're here. We're hungry to uh, hear what you have to say to us. We're expectant. We're hopeful. Our mouths are wide open, Lord, and we're saying to you, feed us, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said. Making our way through the Gospel of Mark, we are in chapter 3. We left off last week at verse 19. Uh, We looked at Jesus calling his disciples to become apostles. They would be his ambassadors, his representatives. He chooses 12, and we went over that last week. This is on the heels of the fact that his ministry has become uh, very well known. He's become insanely popular in terms of uh, and, and among the people that are hurting, people that are sick, people that have afflictions, they're flocking to him in thousands, so much so that, that the crowd was pressing in on him so great. I mean, you can imagine uh, you know, how a rock star feels. They have bodyguards and security guards, and they usher them into the car so no one can, can, can come up and touch them. Or, and for Jesus, it was that, that crowd just pressing in on him uh, for healing. And so that's where we left off. We'll pick up today in verse 20. So let's go there. Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out and lay hold of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. So the multitude has gathered again. Uh, last we left off in verse 19, they had gone into a house. He had chosen his disciples or chosen his disciples to be apostles. And they uh, went off into a house, probably Peter's house in Capernaum. And now some time passes, and once again the multitude gathers together. Jesus is in a house, and uh, the crowd is so great that they they can't even eat. I mean, you know how it is. Sometimes your day gets so busy that uh, it's hard even to find time for lunch. And so the pressure of the people pressing in on him and the busyness of the people coming to him made it so that uh, he couldn't even couldn't even get a chance to stop and take a break to eat. And sometimes when our day gets rolling, it's like that, isn't it? I mean, I find that if I don't get my quiet time in the morning or before I go to bed, those are the two times of the day that that I like to get my quiet time. Because during the day, I mean, things are hopping. Our office gets busy. And we have to force ourselves to try to take lunch. And maybe you're that way too. But in ministry, for Jesus, it's so busy. And so many times we see they they were so busy they couldn't even get time to eat. And so that's, that's the situation Verse 21 says, his own people heard about this. That's a reference to his family. They had heard about what was going on, heard about how popular he'd gotten, and and they're 
their response to that wasn't, oh, isn't that wonderful? Our, you know, our son Jesus, he's so popular now. Look at all the good he's doing for people. That wasn't their response. They said he's out of his mind, or it means to stand aside. So you would say, this guy is beside himself. They thought he was crazy. His family thought he was crazy, just like yours did the day you decided to become a follower of Jesus. Anybody go through that? I mean, some of you grew up in Christian homes, and that made it very easy. Uh, and, And your family applauded you for that choice. Some of you, that's not your story. Some of you grew up in, in a family where when you decided to be a follower of Jesus, that was met with a lot of resentment, a lot of anger. Maybe you grew up in a very dysfunctional family, and now you were going to become that Bible thumper. You know, what you, now all of a sudden you think you're better than us because now you go to church, and, and it's easy to meet with a lot of, uh, of opposition. And sometimes people just think, oh, this is the next crazy thing you're doing. You know, last year you wanted to climb Mount Everest, and, and then you wanted to start this business, and, and now it's Jesus. What's it going to be next, right? You're just out of your mind. Well, if you're a follower of Jesus... Expect that. They've said Jesus, his family, Jesus' family thought he was crazy, and people are going to think you're crazy for wanting to be his follower. So they said, this is, his, this is Mary. Now, there's no mention of Joseph. Uh, even when we get down farther, there's no mention of Joseph. We don't know. Uh, there's speculation that he probably wasn't alive anymore at this point in, in Jesus' life. But uh, we, we hear a mention of his brothers, and some texts say his sisters. But nonetheless, they're coming to lay hold of him to get him out of there. All right, we've got to go rescue. Jesus, is, he's out of his mind. He's a little bit nuts. He's lost his marbles. He thinks he's the Messiah, and people are actually believing him. So this is embarrassing to our family, so we need to go get him and, and get him home. We need, he needs help. That's the idea. Verse 22 says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons... He casts out demons. So now we, we're reintroduced to the scribes, the religious experts. These are the guys that know the Bible inside and out. And there's a piece missing Mark doesn't give us. It's in the Gospel of Matthew. But what happens is as this crowd is continuing to come to him, there's one man in particular that they bring to Jesus. And he has a demon. He's demon-possessed. Now, we still see around the world many instances of demon possession. We, we talked about this a number of weeks ago here, uh, so I won't bring it all back up. But certainly at the time of Jesus, now God in the flesh, the Savior, on the earth, there is also a ramping up not just of God's work, but a ramping up of who else's work to oppose it, Satan's work, to oppose Jesus. So we see a lot of demon possession me- mentioned in the Bible. So this one guy comes, he, he's blind, he can't see, and he's mute, he can't talk. And because of the demon possession in his life, that's why he couldn't. So Jesus sees him, and he heals him. And then the guy's able to both see and to talk. That's what happens when you get healed. The problem was the crowd saw this, and the crowd's response was, who is this guy? I mean, this, we have never seen anything like this. This is unbelievable. Maybe this is the son of David, a, another name for the Messiah. Maybe He really is the Messiah. I mean, look what he's doing. Look at the good he's doing. Look, he's setting captives free. He's healing blind eyes. He's he's healing lepers. I mean, this this lines up with the Messiah, the son of David. So that's what what is in this little section here that you don't get in Mark. So after that, the Pharisees and scribes hear that. And of course, Jesus has challenged them. So now they're faced with this issue. The crowd is beginning to believe Jesus is the son of David. And the Pharisees are jealous and envious of him. 
So now they've got to come up with uh, something to say to the crowd. So the scribes came from Jerusalem, and they say he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he cast out demons. So underline that part, it says he cast out demons. So even his enemies admitted his power. Even if they didn't want to believe he was who he was, they could not and would not and weren't able to go against the fact that he really was casting out demons. So you can't argue with the data. You can't argue with observation. Your testimony is unarguable. You know that, right? That's why you, you can argue doctrine with people all day long. I love the guy that was, that was blind and Jesus healed him. And, and they want to know who did this and, and what's the deal and how did this happen? What's the doctrine behind the healing? I don't know. All I know is I was blind and now I see. You figure it out. And that's the power of your testimony. It's unarguable. And so he really was casting out demons. Even his enemies had to acknowledge his power within the spiritual realm. The problem was, although they couldn't deny it, they also couldn't accept it. They couldn't deny his power, but they wouldn't accept his power. And this presented a real problem. So they had to, co- to reinterpret what they were seeing. And this is where the issue falls. Even today, you, two people can look at the same thing and come up with two interpretations, can't they? We see it all the time. We see people open God's Word and come up with different interpretations of the same thing. Because really, interpretation starts with what you believe. What you believe is so important. Sometimes, and, and hear me say this, I, don't, I hope this doesn't get confusing, sometimes what you believe is more important than what's true. Now let me, let me clarify that. What you believe is more important than what's true. Because to you, what you believe is true. And what you believe is what you act on. Now, what's true is obviously very important. And to believe a lie is a, is a very bad thing. So we believe that we believe the truth. And we let our lives build on that. But a person will do and act on what they believe to be true in their heart. And they will interpret everything around them based on their belief, based on their faith. And we interpret things we see based on our belief. Look at the world we live in. We all have the same world, right? We're all living, just look down, and we're all living on the same earth, right? But yet there are some that see the world around us and say, God clearly doesn't exist. All came by chance. And then there are those that look at the world around us and say, clearly God does exist. Look at the world around us. Two vastly different interpretations of the exact same world we live in. So they come up with a reinterpretation of what's happening, they say he has Beelzebub. Now, what is a Beelzebub? It's a cool word uh, that comes out of Second Kings regarding uh, the, the, uh, the god of Ekron. This is an Old Testament place called Ekron. Baal, Zebub, you know the Old Testament god, Baal. He's the head of the Canaanite pantheon of gods. He's the god of thunder. Uh, he's the god of fertility. And he is the kind of the head of all the gods of Canaan, and his name is Baal, and we, we talk about him when we read the Old Testament. So his name sort of has come to mean and be synonymous with Satan. Baal-zebub means Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies. Maybe some of you have read the book. Lord of the, oh, Lord of the Flies. So if you are the Lord or the God, because Baal means Lord or, or Father or God, Master, if you're the Master of the Flies... That's not a good thing, is it? What do flies tend to hang around? You could also call, Beelzebub could also mean dung god. I'm being very politically correct in that. Because where do flies hang around? They hang around stuff that's dead, 
or decaying or corrupting. So if you're the God over those, the, the things that hang around death and corruption, that's how your name easily begins to be connected with who? Satan himself. The God of this age, uh, the God of, of those that are dying and perishing, you could say. So they say, we know how he's doing that. It's clearly he's doing it by the power of Satan. He's casting out these, these demons. By the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. What a lousy interpretation. I mean, that's what Jesus says next. Look at verse 23. He says, so he calls to him, to these guys to himself. He called them to himself. And he said to them, how can Satan cast out Satan? Let me translate that. In the Greek, that means duh. Like that is a real, because look, some people are going to give you interpretations of stuff and they're going to realize, like, this is what that means. And it's like, duh, that is so dumb. That is like not even close. Because just because someone says it's true doesn't mean it's true. And you've got to think. I love to watch Jesus just be so clear in his statements. They said, hey, by Satan he's casting out Satan. He said, that is really dumb. How can Satan cast out Satan? And he gives two great examples. Example number one is a kingdom. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. I write next to this in my Bible, self-defeating and self-destructive. If a nation is turned against itself, we lost more lives in the Civil War than we've lost in all other wars combined that America's fought in. Our nation did not prosper because of, I mean, as, because of the war. It, it took many, many lives. And so when a kingdom is fighting against itself, I mean, I coached soccer for years, and I knew my team was in trouble when they started arguing with each other. And what if, what if our team, what if half the kids on the team decided to go and turn around and score goals on our own goal? Could we ever win if we were scoring goals against ourselves? No, we couldn't. The team is, is divided. So he says, clearly, th- he's not putting this up for discussion. This is a truth. A kingdom that's divided against itself cannot stand because it's self-destructive. And, second example, if a house is divided against itself, that house can't stand. Again, clearly truth. Um, One of the unfortunate things I do uh, as a pastor is a lot of marriage counseling. Now, again, unfortunate from the sense that there's a lot to do. I enjoy working with couples. The problem is uh, I can't get a couch long enough for them to sit far enough apart when they came in. Now, when they come in for premarital counseling... I, I can give them a chair, and they'll sit on each other's lap or something. You know, they're just like, we just love each other so much, we can't imagine not being together. I mean, we, we just, they're just inseparable, and they're, we're, we're trying to do marriage counseling, and they're stroking each other's hair, and they're just Googling at each other's eyes. And five years later, they're in my office. The, the couch isn't long enough. And they're going, now we can't believe we got married. Now we just can't stand being together. And I was like, what happened? Somehow the house got divided because you know what each couple is what each and the couple is doing they're both pointing the finger at the other one and going it's his fault it's her fault and the blame game has started and i know we're in trouble my first goal as a pastor as a counselor is to get them back on the same team and then we can go forward until they stop blaming each other and realize they want the same things you both they both want peace they both want uh forgiveness they both want mercy but they won't give it to each other. And that divides the house. So when a couple, when a husband and wife are in that situation, it's very, that house is going to be and can easily be destroyed. And that's what Satan specializes in, getting people to, to go against each other. So why would he do that to himself? He knows that's a destructive behavior. 
So if a house is divided against itself, then it can't stand. So that's why forgiveness in your families is so important. Forgiveness brings the house back together and gets you back on the same team again. Again, just a simple truth. So if it's true about a kingdom and it's true about a house, then clearly, verse 26, and if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. I mean, if Satan is now destroying his own work, then we, we can just sit back and not worry because he's going to just eventually destroy himself. And then we can just all go home. But clearly that's not the case. I say Satan may be dumb, but he ain't stupid. He's not going to try to destroy himself. And then Jesus gives them the proper understanding of what happened. All this, the whole reason he's saying this is because they're accusing him of casting out the demon by the power of demons, by the power of Satan. And, and he says, no, clearly here is what actually is happening. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. So this guy's life was being severely and significantly affected by the power of darkness, by Satan. And then Jesus casts out the demon. The guy is set free. He, he claimed him back for God. So Jesus gives this example of the man's life. It's like the man's body is like a house, and his life, his soul, is like the goods. And at that point, Satan was in the house, in control of this guy's life, and, and, and had all of his stuff and was protecting it. And, and to set that guy free, to get back the goods that this guy has, you can't be a wimp. You can't just roll in there and, 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 and just take the strong guy's goods because he's going to defend his house, isn't he? I mean, you know, if you know a robber's coming to your house, you, got, you keep the baseball bat by the bed. Now listen, I found this story. This is quite interesting. Uh, I wish I could show you the picture of this young guy with his face and his, his, his eyes black and blue and his mouth uh, uh, busted open. A knife-wielding burglar had a shock when he attacked a pensioner in his home and discovered his victim was a retired boxer. Senior citizen Frank Corti, age 72, a former junior boxing champion, is still a bit handy with his dukes. And when he spotted the aforementioned intruder, Gregory McCallum, in his hallway, he sprang into action and delivered two right hooks. The blows were so powerful that McCallum, who had just lunged at Mr. Corti with the knife, was left looking like he had been in a car accident. The, pension, <laughs> the pensioner then restrained him until police arrived. He was jailed for four and a half years yesterday after a judge told him he had got what he deserved. That's from 2009. Uh, but it just reminded me of, of the story because here's a guy who was weaker trying to get the goods of a guy who was clearly stronger. And did it work? Didn't work. So in the story that Jesus tells in the parable, he says you got to be, there's a strong man guarding his house and unless that guy gets bound, you can never get his, what belongs to him. So the implication is, Jesus is stronger than Satan. Jesus is stronger than the demonic realm. That's why he was able to go in and take back, take possession of what Satan had previously owned. So that's why, not, the ruler of, not by the power of the devil, but because he is actually stronger than the devil. And you need to know that. And I need to know that. Because there's a lot of lives who's... who's people whose lives are being messed up by the power of Satan in, in their world, in their lives. 
The Bible says the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. He's very manipulative. He's a, he's a, a murderer, uh, a liar, and destroyer. And that's what he does. You want to mess with his kingdom? You want st- this, this is what is so awesome about being a pastor. You get to see people's lives redeemed from the power of hell and brought back into relationship with God. To plunder, there is no greater joy than to plunder the kingdom of Satan. If we do that, we don't, we don't have the power. Jesus does that. That's who does. Jesus enters in. When Jesus entered into my life, he bound up the strong man that was at work in my life. And he keeps him bound. Now, again, physically speaking, Satan will be bound there at the end of the, the millennium. We'll deal with that later on. We're just talking about his work, the work of Satan being taken care of in a person's life. We see it clearly here. First, you have to have someone who's stronger. You can't deal with it yourself. People say, well, I'll come to church. I'll come to Jesus when I first get my act together. You won't. You're not strong enough. You need someone who's stronger than that power to do it for you. And that's what Jesus simply says. Now, he does all this in response to what they've said, in response to their reaction. And they, these, the people he's talking to have crossed or in danger of crossing a line. And he goes on to say, verse 28, Assuredly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter. So don't read on ahead. We'll, we'll get there in a second. But just notice what's being said. All kinds of sins, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men. And, and whatever blasphemies, whatever evil speaking that's been said, all that stuff, forgiven, can be forgiven. Because there's a lot of sins that we kind of place as, as unforgivable. Sometimes, maybe now for us, it's, it's homosexuality. Well, that's the unforgivable sin. It's, for a long time, it was divorce. If someone was divorced, wow, you were, you, were, you were ostracized from the church. Sometimes people think it's smoking. I've seen you know, pay, people judge smoking. Oh, well, I, I, they're coming to church, but do you see? They're smoking, pastor. Have you seen that? They're smoking. That's the, not the unpardonable sin. All kinds of sins can be forgiven. Any kind of sin. Whatever it is you've done, and I hope you're hearing this this morning. Because a lot of people think, man, I've done some bad stuff in my life. I've, you don't know where I've been, and there's no way God could forgive what I've done. Well, Jesus just said it. All manner of sins, all kinds of sins, forgivable. Jesus' blood, the cross of Christ, taking my punishment, the punishment I deserve on himself so that I can have freedom. But not all sins are equal. Jesus, when Jesus was asked about the most uh, important commandment, what's the greatest commandment? Well, he said there's, there's two, and they, they can't be divided. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Love your neighbors, yourself. Those are the greatest commandments. Well, there's also a, a greater sin, now, don't go to the Catholic Church for the list of, list of venial sins and moral, mortal sins and all that. Number one, I'll tell you this, sexual sin is, is, is a different, I'll say a greater kind of sin, greater because it's different than all others. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6, I believe. Um, all other sins we commit are outside of our bodies. But sexual sin is a sin against our own body. A, d- a different kind of sin, a more difficult sin, but a forgivable sin, gang? Absolutely, a forgivable sin. He doesn't say that's the unpardonable sin. But what is then the unpardonable sin? He goes on to say, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Now, why does he say this? 
And it gives us the answer there, verse 30. Because they said he has an unclean spirit. So this passage usually makes people really, really nervous. I talked to a guy between services who came up and said, could you clarify that again? Because when I was younger, I shook my fist at God and I cursed God. And now I'm wondering, have I committed the unpardonable sin? And so people get, get really worried about, have I done it? And, and the, the simple answer, I'll give you right away and then we'll explain it more, is if you're worried you've done it, you haven't done it. If you're worried, if you say, oh no, have I done it? And now I've said those things years ago and, and now I feel differently. I mean, I was angry, I was upset, I was immature, I, you know, I had issues, and, but now I'm in a different place and now I really see the need for God in my life, and, but now I've done this thing and, and now oh, there's no hope for me. If you care then you haven't done it. Then you haven't done it. Get the picture. These guys are seeing Jesus. Now, some say you can't commit this sin today the way that they did because they had Jesus, God in the flesh, right in front of them, and we don't. So in the same way they committed it, we can't because we don't have Jesus doing the miracles right in front of us. But they're seeing the miracles, and they're seeing what, and they will refuse to repent. Their hearts have become so hard against Jesus that they now have refused to be changed, to to refuse to allow Jesus to work in your life, to be unrepentant and carry that unrepentance to the grave. That is a sin that that the Bible says, that Jesus says, leads to eternal condemnation. Or some of your Bibles might say it's an eternal sin. Unrepentance, hardness of heart, is a sin that uh, is, has eternal consequences. Not because God can't forgive you, but because you won't allow him to. Does that make sense? It's unpardonable because you won't receive the pardon that is offered. I mean, if you're sitting on death row in the prison and the governor grants you amnesty, the governor grants you a pardon, and you say, I don't believe in the governor. I don't believe the governor even exists. I'm just going to sit here and take my punishment. Well, that's your own stupid fault. (laughs) I mean, do you see? So if you want to continue, if you say, I want the punishment that's due to me, I reject my, my pardon, then how can you be pardoned if you reject your pardon? Does that make sense? So blasphemy is to speak evil against, and the Holy Spirit is a person. They're looking at the clear goodness of Jesus Christ. I mean, to see what is good, to see people being set free and go, you know what, that's really evil. That's an indication that your heart has become really, really hard. Really hard. And that was the situation they were in. And so to blaspheme is to speak evil against or to curse against. And the Holy Spirit is not a power or an energy. The Holy Spirit is a person. And so to speak evil against the work and the person of the Holy Spirit It's only by the Holy Spirit do we have a new birth. And if you reject being born again, then you can't see the kingdom of heaven. That's what John chapter 3, that's what Nicodemus learned. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. And if you reject and turn away from uh, the work of the Spirit of God in your life, convicting you of sin, then, then you won't repent. And if you won't repent, you can't be saved, you can't be forgiven. Because you won't receive. I hope I'm, I'm trying to be extra clear in this because I don't want you to go home and say, Pastor said I couldn't be saved. No, Pastor's not saying you can't be saved. Pastor's saying when you repent and believe in the cross, believe in Jesus Christ, 
you will be saved. But if you go to your grave not believing, rejecting, Jesus said to the, to the Jews, how often I have wanted to gather you under my wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. But you were not willing. And so that sin, because of the kind of sin it is, because it's a rejection of the forgiveness of God, that sin has eternal consequences. And that's, so that's what he's talking about there. Now, the final section here is uh, we go back to Jesus' family. Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. So there's Jesus. He's teaching. He's got his disciples all around him, and the crowd around him. And they, he gets a message that his family has showed up, and, and they're asking for him to come out. Hey, Jesus, your mom's here. He, she wants you. She wants you to come out. And, and Jesus responds, you moms, you're going you're gonna to get a kick out of this. But he answered them saying, who is my mother or my brothers? Hey, wait a second. Get, listen up, kid. You know, I raised you. I diapered you. you know, I sacrificed for you. Who is your mother? I mean, what are you talking about? This is Mary we're talking about. And by the way, notice if you would, I don't know if you have a Catholic background or not, just not knocking Catholicism, just saying some have learned about the perpetual virginity of Mary. Well, here clearly Jesus has brothers. They came from somewhere. I mean, I'm not a scientist, but I'm just saying they came from somewhere. So he says, who is my mother or my brothers? He looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. So he sort of redefines not the biological family, but a spiritual family. We all have biological families. Some of us, uh, my own testimonies, I grew up in, in a family with a lot of love, a very, a very loving family, very supportive family, uh, great relationship with my parents, and I have a, a brother and twin sisters that are 17 years younger than me. But some of you have grown up in very dysfunctional families. And uh, some of you, you don't even, your family is, you're an outcast from your family. And uh, the good news is, is that even for me, what we share in the Word of God, what we share by desiring to, to love the Lord and, and loving Him, do what He asks, we share something uh, that's a very deep and spiritual family. And so as I look around, even as I read this, I say, in some ways you guys are uh, more family. I spend more time with you. We labor together. We pray together. We study together. We walk together through this life and into the next. And, and this is an awesome spiritual family. And for some people, this is the only family they've got. And so how important for us to recognize that when some people have been rejected from their families for a variety of reasons, some are rejected because they're gay from their families. And to come in here and to learn the truth. Remember, he said, for whoever does the will of God is my brother. So for someone who's been rejected from their family, drugs, alcohol, destruction, whatever, and to come in here seeking the Lord, to be able to be, to be welcomed into the family of God, all the language of God is family language. It's not business language. I'm not a CEO. You guys aren't clientele. It's a family. And so Jesus looks around. He says, you know what? This my, you guys, you guys are my family. Yeah, I got a lot of spiritual parents and spiritual brothers and sisters. And my kids have spiritual grandparents. And it's an awesome thing. And so we're going to take that thought into communion. So if the folks that are going to serve communion 
would prepare to do so. Uh, we're going to turn the lights down, and I'm going to ask for your attention on the screen up here. Uh, Michael and Becky Moore uh, were kind enough to sit through this sermon twice <laughs> because they came this morning for the first service and shared this song and video, and they're going to come up and they're going to share it again because it's really, really important, um, and it's perfect for communion and for what we've been talking about. So pay close attention, enjoy the song. As communion comes around, just hold on to the cup, hold on to the bread, and after the video, we'll all partake together. Amen? Amen.